Hi, and welcome everybody to another Safety View. We've got a great show lined up for you today. And I'm here with my co-host, um, Rosa Carrillo, and we're going to be having a great conversation with Adrienne. Uh, Rosa, why don't you kick it off? Thank you. Um, we'd like to welcome everyone to our um, unusual conversation where we allow people to speak rather than watch PowerPoints. Uh, so this is going to be fun. I want to uh, ask you all to go into the chat and let us know where you're from so that um, we can get a sense of where everybody is from. Uh, oh, Tanya's already in there from Ottawa, Ontario, unceded territory of the Algonquin. So thank you for reminding us, Tanya, that we all sit here on Native American land. Thank you, Native Americans. Um, and uh, we have a lot of Canadian, Argentina, that's great. Yorkshire, UK, uh, New York, lots of UK people. Australia, oh, Brett, hi, Brett. Uh, I, Brett, I'm, I'm impressed. What time is it in Australia? You have to unmute yourself. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's just gone 11 p.m. here, so it's not, uh, not a crazy time for me. It's not too late, but, uh, but it'll be my bedtime when this is finished. <laughs> Brett is a recently published author as well, so uh, I wonder if we have other published authors. We have already talked about Richard and Brett, so uh, let us know if you've written a book because Gary is looking for more authors to showcase on our Meet the Author um, show. All right, so we, we're getting a sense of everybody that's here. And I, I'm going to um, remind everyone that you can uh, put questions into the chat, into the chat uh, so that we can answer them um, at some point. But also we are going to, uh, Adrian and I are going to interact because um, I want you to get to know her a little bit. And then the second half of the hour will be um, open conversation, uh, asking questions and such. So if that is okay with everyone, we'll move forward. Okay, Adrian Kelby, uh, first woman CEO of ONR. And ONR stands for? The Office for Nuclear Regulation. Basically in charge of making sure that the UK nuclear state is safe and secure. Very important. Yes, and I did invite uh, people from nuclear. Hopefully, they're, they're going to be jumping on. So, Adrian, when I was uh, writing my book, uh, I noticed that all my stories were about men leaders. And so I reached out to my LinkedIn uh, uh, friends and I said, I need, I need women. I need women's stories. And your name came up the most often. So I don't know how it happened, but I contacted you and you took my call and eventually you just uh, agreed to, um, for me to interview your staff because you wanted to know, well, you know, how does my staff really feel about me? And that, that, that was a very courageous move on your part. And I wanna thank you for that. And so you became part of my book and she's on pages 12 through 15 of my book. 
Uh, aside from being CEO, uh, Adrian is involved in a lot of different, uh, really important uh, initiatives, uh, including diversity and inclusion. Um, she is a visible role model for that in, in terms of her position and the way she speaks up for people. Uh, and she is involved in Black Lives Matter because inclusion and diversity is another topic that she's very involved in as well as protecting our planet. Uh oh, are you frozen? Okay, we'll let Adrian work on that. While we're waiting for her, did some of you have some questions already to ask or for Adrian to address? Oh, Rosa, I'd like to ask you, what did you write about in your, in your book about Adrian? Why don't you share that with us? Yes, she was recommended as being an outstanding woman leader. And so I called her and she, she brought up a topic. Uh, how do you reconcile psychological safety with challenging people to grow? Can there be too much psychological safety? So after our discussion, I, I asked her if, well, could I interview her staff? Because her staff would be able to tell me more accurately uh, you know, how they felt and also why they felt that way. And so that's, that's what I wrote about in my book, that the specific uh, leadership behaviors that they named uh, and why they felt included, why they felt they belonged, why they felt psychologically safe. And it, it, I used the Google questions from that study. So it was very much, uh, very much the same kind of results in terms of there, uh, you know, what's, what was interesting to me was that uh, it really wasn't about making people feel good so much as it was about, uh, you know, clear priorities, clear objectives, um, being able to give and receive feedback, which Adrian is very good at asking for feedback and receiving it openly. Okay, so we have Adrian back now. So Adrian, I don't know if you were able to hear that I was talking about um, the many movements you're involved with, inclusion and diversity, uh, Black Lives Matter, um, more empowering women and <clears throat> raising them in the organization to higher levels. And so I was wondering which one of these is the dear is closest and dearest to your heart. <laughs> Isabella asked me what's my favourite I'm not sure I answer that all at the same time. Um, I think that what's closest to my heart is trying to create everybody is... Do you well, want to try shutting off your camera and see if that helps with your audio? Let's try this. Okay, that works better. Probably needed for people to absorb as well without having to look at me. Um, so I'll try this. Um, I'll also, I'll, I'll try coming off headphones if need be in a minute as well. But, but Rosa, your question about, you know, which cause as such is more important, I am a bit flippant in saying, well, you know, is that a favourite child question? Of course, perhaps different things at different times in different situations. For me, what's closest to me is trying to create organisations where people achieve more of their potential. I recognize that I am probably a trainer at heart who happens to have become a chief executive a few times. 
And I say that because the thing that gives me most um, energy and nourishment in my job is seeing other people come on. And so this notion of trying to do what's right for everyone, it happens in this industry to be focused around having more women achieve their potential. There's no doubt about that. It's 22, 23% women in the UK nuclear industry, which is not good for cognitive diversity. Um, also, support for Black Lives Matter, again, is about a, a world which should be more equal. But at its heart is a really simple and fundamental belief. When we raise the bar for any group, we raise the bar for every group. And that's what I want in my organizations. I want every group doing their absolute best and really pushing the performance, which in my case, everybody who buys electricity has to pay for. Hmm. Wonderful. And, and do you, did you have like a transformational moment that brought you to this view in terms of your leadership? Was it gradual or was it like, oh my gosh, this, is, this happened and suddenly I realized that people were, were the most critical component of the organization? I do think it's been gradual. Um, I would have been much more of a task manager in my 20s than I am now. That, of course, perhaps relates to what job you're in. Um, but I think just the, the recognition over years comes a little bit from maturity. I've noticed the average age on this call is not in their 20s. Um, but also, I'll be honest, coming from some really horrible mistakes, which I've been lucky people have forgiven me for, getting things completely the wrong way around, seeing the task is the thing I had to drive harder instead of really caring more for the people, including myself. Uh, over the years. So my sense is that leadership development really does need to focus on people more. And the programs that I have most benefited from have had that as a lens. Have had that as a lens, the, the people lens? Or what yes. do you call that lens? Mm -hmm. yeah. oh, mm -hmm. So the sense for me in, in development, Rosa, um, you know, when, when we look to create relationships with people that get jobs done, this isn't a soft subject. I, I want to be really clear about this. It's not what one person described me as in my first few weeks in ONR telling me, you seem so nice. It's all a bit pink and fluffy for us around here. We're all about delivery. And um, I do get frustrated by this dichotomy, which is completely untrue. Um, that's created between delivery or people, you know, development or capability. It has to be both and it has to be balanced and it has to be sustainable. Yes, in fact, that reminds me of um, how we, we started um, interacting and how we met uh, because I did interview you for my book. Uh, and in our, one of our conversations, you said, I've been wondering about psychological safety because I don't know that you can have psychological safety and challenge people to grow because at some point you have to um, deliver, you know, that hard advice. So that kind of uh, sprung into our uh, survey where I interviewed your staffing and came up with how they felt about your management style. And I was able to gather the specific behaviors that they felt made them feel included and belonging. 
Uh, and I, I want to thank you for that because that, that took a lot of courage to let me talk to your staff. Uh, so I was wondering, uh, since the book was published, uh, that it, have you, um, what, what happened when you're, you talked, I know you talked to your staff about the results and, and some follow-up, what, what happened or anything new or different since that time? You know, it, it was a lovely opportunity uh, and thank you for, for doing that. I wasn't afraid of uh, letting you loose on my team at all because it's another data source from an independent that, you know, is going to help me hopefully improve. Um, something surprised me about it and it was the importance placed on what I've now kind of got a phrase about being caring enough to be daring enough of the team. And this bedrock of a relationship creating sufficient psychological safety, even when I'm going to put someone into a discomfort state. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't thought about it in that way before. So it gave me a, a, just a simple language to speak to people about, even to the degree where, you know, my, my sort of phrase now, which I'm known for is, your comfort zone is not your friend. And we have a bit of a laugh when we say, this is going to be one of those comfort zone moments, isn't it? And we say, yeah, but it's okay because the relationship is sustained. The bond that we have, you know, where as a stable base for the team, I am secure for them is sufficient to enable both they and I to withstand what can be tense moments, whether it's constructive tension in, in dialogue at management team meetings or indeed where I am pushing uh, people through discomfort that they themselves don't want to go through around performance or blind spots or risks, whatever that might be. And um, it's actually created a sense of uh, unity around some of the words, which I just didn't think about before, Rosa. But, you know, if I, if I give you the macro picture, when I arrived in ONR in, in 2016, Performance, um, sorry, trust in leadership was in single figures. So mm -hmm. when we did a staff survey, a couple of weeks after I arrived, we had, you know, nearly 90, I think, 5% of people responding. This is a huge engagement index. And single figures, trust in leadership. Mm -hmm. That was shocking to me. And yet this organization was still full of people upright, doing their jobs, doing their delivery but you know that that just couldn't go on we've just done a survey a couple of weeks ago and it's at 89 percent uh, and it shot up pretty quickly after that first year i can tell you it really concentrated the minds and another figure in terms of this way of working is that despite being cast to the four winds we have been working remotely in onr for a year only going to site, uh, you know, where we've had essential regulatory work and in the office for critical business reasons. Mm -hmm. And despite that, 94% of my staff say they feel connected to their team. So I would suggest that the relationship factor in ONR has not only allowed us to grow and develop, it has allowed us to stay upright with more than a pulse during the worst ever kind of crisis that we've had to face as a regulator. And I'm extremely proud of the team because that tells me that that's throughout the organization. It's not just one person dropping a pebble, it's everybody in that pond 
swimming together, looking out for each other. And that, I think, is incredibly important. Uh, Adrian, your, your experience reflects uh, my experience as well when I've worked with um, leaders who are able to be inclusive and engage their staff and challenge them. Um, and I want to make sure that those of you who do a lot of work in this area put uh, ask questions. So if something comes up, just uh, raise your hand and let me know that you have a burning question and, and you can ask it because uh, I, I'll, I'll keep asking questions until somebody <laughs> raises their hand. Uh, there's some good stuff going on in the chat about the dichotomy between being nice uh, and being um, demanding, I suppose. And that was one of the uh, things that uh, you told, uh, no, that one of your direct reports told me, Adrian, that uh, you have to have thick skin to work for Adrian because she's going to tell you how it is. Uh, but it's, uh, it's okay because she has your back and she will, you know, uh, make sure that you, you succeed. And, and so I think that's what you're talking about, having that um, ability to push people into their discomfort zone. Uh, but still kind of feel like you're somebody's holding your hand. Greg, did yeah. you have a question? Greg? No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the talk of comfort zones always interests me because it implies that human judgment is significant. I don't think we get out of our comfort zone just by being pushed harder on processes we understand, we know, and where we're clear what we're doing the comfort zone starts breaking down when there's lots of pressure on our judgment and decision-making. And yet in a lot of organizations, the pressure to conformity, especially the pressures around reducing risk are often understood even at board level as being in large part about reducing dependency on uh, judgment. And as we try and create systems where reliance on good human judgment isn't so critical, we end up reducing the opportunities for human judgment to be part and parcel of how the organization lives, breathes and works. And I see it coming back in at a high level, at executive level, but I don't always see it coming in lower down in the organization. So I was just wondering, you know, going right back from your days at whole uh, council right through to today how you see things changing to in the place of judgment in the everyday workings of the organization and particularly now that you're in somewhere like nuclear where you know mistakes aren't things that can happen thank you i'll try with camera and i'll pop it off again if if uh, reception is still bad so there's quite a bit in there. Thank you for that. My view is that we are constantly, you know, our brain's built for two things, detect risk, detect opportunity. That's it. It's pretty much all it does all day. I think our own perceptions of what is risk and opportunity vary wildly between individuals, depending on context and experience. So I think what's key is at the kind of individual level is to understand what somebody else is and isn't comfortable with and this assumption that everybody else is the same as us is, is usually the, the source of deep trouble there 
So, you know, I think people are making judgments all day long. Um, I'll come back to your process question in a minute, because at all points in the day, we're deciding whether or not to say something, how to say it, whether to remark on it, whether to address the office politics, whether to actually have that conversation with a peer who's doing something we know in a suboptimal way, whether to tell our wives that we are or are not content with the way things were at dinner yesterday to tackle our children on quite what is going on with their shopping or screen time habits. We are making judgments all the time and deciding what we've got comfort with and what we have capacity to deal with, I think. When we move that up to an organisation then, and certainly thinking about Hull, you know, it is clearly in the consumer's benefit and shareholders to have efficient processes that take away the degrees of inconsistency and or wastage that can be built into many organisations. But I have tended to work in organisations where judgment has been critical whether it's the safeguarding function in my previous role um, in uh, you know, sort of, uh, barring and, and disclosing for the UK, uh, whether it's in Hull, which was dealing with all sorts of adult social care, teacher services, you know, huge range of services by a local authority. And uh, or, or 10 years before that with lottery funding where individuals made all of the decisions. So I think where you can move to, to process and take away uh, or, or put on uniformity, that's great. But we shouldn't pretend that that is taking away people's decisions to, to step out of their comfort zone and make uh, make things better for an organisation is where I would see it. My difficulty, I think, with organisations that over rely on processes as the be all and end all of company culture or of the thing that drives performance right here, though, are quite fundamental. Because even in the way some sectors describe themselves, we are cogs in the machine. Um, you know, we are we are pushed and pulled. Even me, I use the word drive thinking of this audience, but my natural words would be about nourishing and growing and developing. Um, so again, that tends to switch the mind off about taking risks because it feels that there's a right and a wrong answer. And fundamentally for me, even in a highly process-oriented uh, sector, like nuclear itself, you still have to create a language and a relationship set where people can say this doesn't feel right, it doesn't look right, I am concerned, I don't think you're doing it right, boss. Um, and if all we do is bear down on are you complying, then we almost take out the opportunity to not comply and see that as a good thing. And I think that way actually brings in fear at times because the culture then drives doing what you're told, which may or may not be doing what's right. Does that make sense? Brilliant. It's just, it's brilliant. It makes total sense. Um, and I mean, there's, there's so many questions to ask Justin what you just said, but I, I do want to go back to Tom Osario who asked, do you have any specific approaches to moving technical specialists such as nuclear physicists uh, in, out of their uh, comfort zone into the uh, non-technical or the, so, the social tech stuff? Yeah. How do you? How do you? Wow. Uh, so how do you know, I guess it's how do we clone you, Adrian? I mean, how do we? <laughs> oh my goodness! Let's let's not do that. <laughs> There's enough mistakes in this body for a lifetime. Let's let, let's get a better version at least. Um. Well, I'll be honest. I didn't quite know what I was getting into. <laughs> People describe this organisation, and I didn't think too much about it because it just looked extremely worthy 
you know, purposeful, exciting. So for me, it was nirvana to be able to be invited in to help lead a, a huge organizational change, essentially. I didn't really know what I was getting into. So um, the first actual comfort zone issue and, and, and kind of creating a place of psychological safety was for myself. Mm. I was the third chief executive in 14 months. Wow. That's highly unusual and it's extremely unusual in the public sector. We don't yeah. tend to change people, even if they're not quite doing the job sometimes, let's be honest. Yeah. So there was that sense of, <laughs> how long have I got? Um, and some people I know in the organization felt very, you know, perhaps fairly, that if they just get ahead for maybe eight months, or maybe 12 months, I would be gone too. So the first psychological thing I had to do was, was, was create some for myself where I wasn't washing my back and, and worrying that I would be next for the chop, frankly. Um, and that required a lot of dialogue with the chairman and with my department about, my, my government department about what I was going to do and what I expected from them in terms of support. The next thing really was listening a lot. Um, I didn't go in with a, here is my agenda, you know, over the top chaps, this is what we're going to do. I literally spent the first month listening to staff and stakeholders and I went in and, and I pretty much only said two things for a month. What do I need to know? And will you forgive me when I make my first mistake? Mm. That was it. That, that's pretty much all I said, all around the organization and small groups. So I think in, in showing a vulnerability there, I think in being prepared to, to listen, actually, that was a huge help. Um, also then being out at uh, early on, speaking with great pride and to be clear, our regulation was, was in great shape, our organization was not. So, you know, I think that was important at creating the base. Really, it's been a long, hard and consistent slog. Um, I don't believe that any human beings are able to exist in a healthy psychological state without bonding. As we came into the call, just I think before we went live, we were speaking about this, you know, lack of touch and, and lack of physical faith. You know, we've had to find different ways over Zoom and others. Um, but I think even in that, the consistency of behavior over time, the reliability of my perspective being balanced and fair and demanding, um, and really relying on staff's belief in my motivation being intrinsically positive for them and just not letting it go. Jacqueline? Yeah, hi, Rosa. <laughs> and this is Jackie from uh, Munich. Um, I had a question about, uh, there was a part in your book about um, where you were surprised about the importance of breaking down silos um, to create psychological safety. And in the interviews, it was clear that even at high levels, um, high level individuals feared peer rejection. And uh, there's a really lovely uh, quote in there saying, she lent me her gravitas until I developed my own. And I wanted to ask Adrian, what did that look like? How did you lend people your gravitas? And uh, was it contagious or, you know, did people have to go and re reach for it or be conscious of it? <laughs> um, well, that was, that was, I remember that. I felt a bit like maybe I was carrying about this, um, you know, beautiful silk wrap that I could hand over to people. Um, and especially because I don't really consider myself as somebody who goes about wearing gravitas terribly much. Um, but, you know, when I spoke to the team about this, as Rosa alluded to, 
what was put back to me is there are times where um, I know I'm very junior in the room and you just completely make that inappropriate to, to mention. It's, it's just completely irrelevant. And it is really, again, a belief for me that, that we take people for their, their strengths and, and their skill sets, their perspectives. So, you know, one of the early projects I ran in ONR was actually with the most junior staff um, and no even middle, let alone senior manager sponsoring them. They, they just work directly to me. So I think that notion of loaning, loaning gravitas is to really metaphorically at the moment and physically where possible stand next to somebody and say, I have brought Jackie in today because she's got some really great things to share with us. Over to you, Jackie. And to not over explain, to, to not, you know, Jackie's here to help me. It's literally your space. And I think empowerment might be an easier term to recognize. But yes, frankly, I try and do that with everybody because I think where people lack confidence, it's entirely possible to loan them yours until they, they have more of their own. It's a bit like a smile. If you've got one and somebody else hasn't got it, you can definitely share yours without losing your own. And I think Gravitas can be more like that in coaching, but also in, in advocacy and sponsorship. You're so practical, Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> Lend someone your smile if they don't have one. Uh, yes, and that is what, when I was interviewing that particular person, uh, she said it helped to break down the silos because uh, you would sit there with whatever her peer, whoever her peer was, you would sit in that meeting and make sure that uh, the peer understood that, you know, that this was also your thoughts uh, that you were behind this particular um, intervention or program. So I think you're right. It's just it's that physical presence. Uh, and I guess now we have to do it on Zoom, <laughs> but that is so important. Yeah. Um, I have another question here. Um, sorry that, um, let's see, it says, uh, oops. Uh, it was about regulation. Sorry, Jake, your question just left the thing. Okay, question for Adrian. How have you handled very compliance-driven regulators, auditors, or lawyers who don't want to interact with frontline people or understand real-world work and who seem to focus exclusively on whether or not rules have been followed? And so how, have, how do you deal with people like that? Well... Again, it's looking at what it is we ask people to do most of the time. So what does a regulator do? On the whole, it's absolute bottom line is to ensure compliance with extremely important international safety standards. Those are non-negotiable. There was a decision to be a, a regulator which was more enabling in tone, which was by trying to understand the issues that um, the sector faced. Now, in a nuclear context, I would ideally want to be catching them doing things right and making sure that anything wrong is dealt with. And that felt a lot like it transported across the relationship. Well, I, I kind of look at things as uh, from the aspect of the um, safety sphere. So we've got all the regulators and all the politicians at the blunt end, where a lot of us are kind of associate with the frontline workers and supervisors kind of at the sharp end. We do have this dichotomy, and I'll go back to that, as we look at constraints, and constraints could be the regulations and policies. And I'd like to kind of suggest to people, well, how can you actually make standards and regulation rules be more enabling 
as opposed to governing and controlling. And that's going to take everybody down the spirit to kind of think about that. So that's another paradigm shift. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To add on to that also, Gary, you know, it, it'd be good for leaders to think when they are um, having group discussions, how do you um, cultivate a culture where people feel comfortable, even if, you, if it's a message other people may not want to hear to speak up? I'm, maybe people have some ideas they can share on that that they found work with their teams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, in Dick's question, he was wondering how Adrian works with, um, with regulators because they're, of course, their job. And I think, Jake, uh, I don't know how much you were able to understand there, so please speak in. But it seemed that she was saying that you have to start from the position of understanding that that's their job. What did you, were you able to pick up anything from that? I picked up a little bit, not too much. The audio was really broken up. Maybe yeah. some on my end, I'm not sure. It was um, mine too, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, it's just something I've run into time and time again. Um, frontline leaders and safety folks seem to get the idea of where we're going, that work is imagined and work is done. There's almost always a difference between the two. And you can't, one of the worst questions to ask is, well, did you follow procedure? Often the answer is, which one? There's nine of them. They interrelate and conflict. Which one do you mean? And of course, there's no answer to that. Many regulators who don't work with the frontline folks and really don't want to, all they're asking is, here's here's the violation on paper. That's a problem. And they just don't get it. So even if we get the frontline leaders or even the local you know, you know, lab leaders or organization leaders, what I found is there's a ceiling that we hit is once you start dealing with the regulators, they don't really care. Um, and they just, I, I don't care how warm and fuzzy your organization is, you know, either you did this, or you didn't. And they, mm-hmm. they kind of, some of them have even, it, it almost seems like the metric they're following was how many violations did I find? They look better. The more violations they find, the better they look. And that's not a necessarily a good thing. But that's just something I've seen a couple times. Uh, I, I, have that, seen, I have seen the same, Jake. Uh, Richard, what, what were you going to say? What I found was when I was a plant manager in the plant where I learned the most, where we were about 1,300 people, we had 40 million pounds of anhydrous ammonia in a tank, and 15 to 20 tank cars of HCN in the plant. So although it wasn't the nuclear industry, we had plenty of opportunities to get into big trouble. And there was a lot of dissension and dysfunctional behavior. So I began to walk the plant. And I'd go out and sit down and talk with people and listen and, you know, how are you doing? How am I doing? Where, how can we do this better? And we talked. And every day I did that. I did that for five hours a day for seven years. I did not make decisions in the field, but I listened and learned and talked with the people, not at them, but with them. Mm-hmm. And over the course of time, the psychological space got safe enough where everybody could talk about anything. They could talk to anyone who, with whom they wanted to talk. They could talk to me at any time. They could give me help for things I screwed up. And they would do that. Mm-hmm. As we did that, I didn't talk about them changing things, but rather, how can we do it better? How can we listen better? What's going on? If you talk to your buddies and are they learning? What are we doing? So in a sense, I was playing like the referee 
for a big game on the field and they're playing the game on the field and I'm the referee talking with them about what's going on, why we got to do this or that kind of a rule. How can we make our rules better to close the gap between work is imagined and work is done? And over the course of the first three years, our injury rates went down 97%. In five years, our emissions to the environment were down 96%. Mm -hmm. Earnings were up 300%. Productivity was up 45%. And I wasn't pounding on the economic stuff at all. We were just talking about how can we do this to better? How can we help each other? Mm -hmm. How can we listen together? And it was the talking with the people rather than at the people. And that's a big shift. It's subtle, but it's very, very different. We're talking with each other today most of the time. We need to do that, go out and sit down and talk with our folks. Most of them are pretty smart. They're yeah. pretty competent. They take care of their families pretty well. They buy homes and pay for them. They buy cars and pay for them. They raise families. But people in our organizations are not stupid. No, no. Uh, now, you worked with regulators as well. I think Adrian is back in the room. Adrian? Hello? I, can we hear you? I'll, I'll tell you a story about... Hi, I'm back. Oh, okay. I'll tell you a story about regulators that actually happened to us. When I was the plant manager in Niagara Falls near Love Canal, DuPont had a dump that was bigger than Love Canal. And we were working with the regulators and our guys would meet on a Thursday and then meet with the regulators on Friday. And finally, they decided that was a waste of time. So they invited the regulators to come to the regular meetings we were having. And we all worked together to try to make it better. And that worked extraordinarily well. But we had to be open and straight with the people. No covering up. But when we did that, the regulators, who were just trying to do their job as well, began to shift out of this... Uh, I got your mode and over into well, how can we really fix this so that it's better for the community? Working with the people, sharing information, mm -hmm. listening and learning together, being respectful, yeah. and helping people see how their work is important is the major task for leaders in my view. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Dick. Uh, uh, so Adrian, I think we couldn't really catch everything you were saying, but I think uh, because what you wrote in the chat about that regulators need both the social and the technical skills, right? And so is that something you specifically um, do in your organization at ONR? Hi, Rosa. Hello. I'm just gonna take my video off because it seems to help. Uh, yes. I mean, fundamentally, we have made behaviours a part of our performance appraisal system. Mm -hmm. And it was what I said earlier about having to make the explicit, or in my view, what was implicit, explicit. We really did that in, in a, a very mindful way. So our whole performance and appraisal system requires people uh, to provide evidence because this plays into the strengths of the organisation and the preference not just on delivery of tasks, but on behavior. And those are taken equally into account in promotion boards. Mm -hmm. So that's quite a difference. Um, and I think as well, when I started the job, uh, I made a, a habit of, of having a lot of stakeholder engagement and asking for feedback, which some um, organizations I think have a difficulty with. They feel that you're perhaps liable then to regulatory capture 
if you're asking for essentially performance feedback on your staff by those you regulate. I take a very different view on that because I think, again, it is data from which we can learn. Mm -hmm. And we identified from asking for performance feedback um, some of the particularly difficult areas that we needed to provide more emphasis on training. We need to provide more coaching. So it's still a work in progress for us. I have, I have no doubt about that. But the impact on the relationships, especially when we are making judgments which are costing multi-millions uh, of pounds to the nuclear estate, or which may not be what the anti-nuclear lobby, whom we also serve, um, you know, feel are, are correct that we can rely as much as possible on the relationships intention that we are doing the right things as public servants we are applying applying a fair process and we have the best experts in the world to make those judgments that takes us to the front line but the way in which we deliver those messages is now different than it used to be i i see now a greater degree of empathy i see less frustration and i see clearer language um and again, I think in terms of relationships, when people are providing feedback of any nature, including regulatory, and it isn't accessible or as accessible as it could be, or it's delivered without feeling, then it is always harder to receive. So I believe that's just as appropriate for a regulator as it is for a nurse or a doctor or a social worker, mm. because we all serve the public. Mm. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's... Um... That is key, absolutely. So we have uh, one of your comments, and I want to make sure I get to this because we kind of promoted leadership conversations uh, when we were talking about you because so many people uh, that report to you mentioned that your one-on-ones were a critical component of what made them feel included and psychologically safe, those one-on-one -on -one conversations and you have a particular way of doing them. So uh, could you share a little bit about that? I can. Um, can I just reply really quickly to Tanya? Are inspectors rewarded the number of infractions they find? Hell no. No, no, never, and nor should they be. Um, I'll leave that to anybody who's doing it, but that's, that's not incentivizing fairness and objectivity. It doesn't incentivize balance. I use an entirely loose structure. People come with what they want to talk about. Um, and what I ask for them is that we have a playback at the end of it. So essentially, I see them all as coaching sessions on problems, not opportunities to tell me the 59 things they did since the last time we met because frankly, I should already know what they've done or not done since the last time we met. So it's very performance, and by that I mean individual. Um, it also talks about relationships, how they're working with the wider team and across the organization, the visibility of the importance of their work so that others respect and understand the codependence that we all have. And the playback note is really key because I ask within 40 hours for a short note that captures what we discussed what it means and what's happening next. And that's generally not a task list that comes back to me. Sometimes it is because it's important if there's dissonance in the task that we record that. But it's very often about um, developmental actions that are to be taken. 
And I think it it's helped us all take lots of little steps towards greatness instead of trying to do something so big that we might fail. Um, so little steps to fail along the way, try things out, practice things. Um, but the goal is always about better public uh, safety. So everything ties back to that, whether you're in finance, HR, or in frontline inspection. Um, but they are quite intense. I, I, just as a story, I, I've been coaching um, a number of, of people, including you know some sort of middle um, staff uh, in the organisation. And I was about 20 minutes into a session with a new uh, colleague of ours in the security function. So he said, Adrian, this is much deeper than I expected us to go. And we're only 20 minutes in. And I said, well, that's because we're going to go somewhere important. We're not going to skate along the surface. And it's been amazing. I think we've had four sessions together and it's been amazing. But I have to risk perhaps making statements that aren't right, in which case trying to position them as questions. I have to risk them thinking, that's a bit personal. I have to risk them thinking, I don't know if I want to do this. And it's all worth it because I genuinely believe when we stick with it, we all come out of those conversations better off, me included. That is not a one-way street, Rosa. Wow. That all comes from your feeling of your own psychological safety, I suspect. Yeah. Rosa, there are times where as leaders, we will get a kick in the teeth. Yes. It's going to happen. But if we don't believe the people that we are serving, and by that I mean our staff and our stakeholders are worth taking the odd kick in the teeth for, then we should probably find a different clan. I have to agree with you there. Yeah. I think that's fascinating about being willing to go into the depth. That doesn't, uh, Richard, you still want to say something again? Your hand has been up. Did you want to say something else, Richard? Uh, I, no, thank you. Sorry about that. Oh, oh okay. All right. Yeah. What, um, anyone else? Reaction? Let's give Adrian some feedback or questions. Nobody has their hand up. Oh, I see a hand. Jim, thank you. Mm -hmm. I just want to say cheers. Your, your commitment to the relationships comes through so clearly. It's palatable for me. And um, it, it shows me, at least, that um, there are a number of uh, things that even those of us that, that think we've we've lived a full life really could put more emphasis on. So thank you for sharing. Bravo. Um, in so many ways, your remarks this morning here in Rhode Island um, have validated the transformation that I think that I am on and ongoing uh, and uh, very much appreciate your willingness to to share to the larger community. Thank you for that. Oh, you're most welcome. Gordon? Yeah, th thanks very much, uh, Rosa, and thanks, uh, Adrian, for your um, 
presentation here today. It's 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 uh, very informative and it it kind of answers a um, you know a second question for me that we talked about the last time uh, that I was on one of the uh, information sessions a couple of weeks back, and that was you really expose uh, the difficulty it is to be at, to be at the top. You know you're in a leadership role at the very top, and you're you're still you're still affected. Your psychological safety is still affected as as a manager is, as a supervisor, as a frontline worker. And that's where I find that sometimes it's, you know, we don't, we look, we overlook that at times that you're still a human being, regardless of your position. You're, you're still, uh, you know, you still want to be liked by people. You still want to be accepted. You still want to be seen as, you know, doing the right thing. And, and that's, and that's, you know, as you get higher levels up, it seems to get that much harder and that much more difficult to, you know, influence uh, your, the, the surrounding group that, really pays your wages too. And, and, you know, including the public. So you can be judged pretty harshly by the public if you're seen to be too conservative on things uh, even. So I'll just leave it at that, but thank you very much, Adrian. It was very, very enlightening. Who else? I'm just kind of curious here because I come from a different industry. Um, so I'm, I'm curious if individuals are non-compliant to regulations, are they also um, able to get monetary penalties imposed on them? Or is that just to the companies? Just to the companies. Interesting. Because here in because Canada, here in Canada, um, um, that, that um, AMPs can be imposed by the regular either on the individual or on the company. And I know in, in our industry, with the regulator, if we have a repetitive person, individual, he will tag the individual, not the company. And then that kind of wakes up the employees that yeah. they have a responsibility also. Mm -hmm. And Tanya, I'm curious, yeah. what is your takeaway from this session? Uh, I, I mean, I love Adrienne. I remember when she came to Ottawa, I loved her talk then. I, I think she's just a fantastic person to, to listen to. She has, she lives this stuff. And as you just heard, um, you know, she, she recognizes the importance of, of treating people as people. And, um, and it shines through. I, I think you're just a fantastic leader out there, Adrian. Thank you so much for doing what you've done. You might have been the one that recommended her to me. <laughs> you seem in a bad day. <laughs> oh, I wish I wish our sound had worked better, but uh, but it was. It's been an absolutely fantastic session. Uh, everybody's writing. You can write in the chat because Adrian's going to be able to read the chat as well. Um, if you have a takeaway from the session or, or a comment that you want to send her, you can write it into the chat. Um, I'm. I'm open to hearing any other takeaways from, from you that anybody else want to um, talk about their takeaway? Uh, go ahead, Jim. Mm -hmm. Just a, an observation kind of related to Jake's question. And I think Adrian spoke to it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you actually, in if, if you're in a regulated role, you can actually coach the regulator. Mm-hmm. And, and you can coach them in the types of interactions that are building on strengths. You can help them understand how much is actually going well and um, encourage them to maybe get a little better balance in their interaction. And um, it, it is actually pretty effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, balance is key. So when you bring balance to that and show people data that they may not be seeing, then you're gonna get a fairer outcome. And that includes relationship data, not just technical data. Because at the end of the day, human beings are human beings first in dual titles, at least third or fourth. You have to address the human, to address the performance, not the policies, the principles, the procedures. You've got to address behavior as as number one, because that will get you the biggest gains and the biggest positive gains. What I want is nuclear safety, first and foremost. That's what I'm aiming for, not being the best person to catch people out. I want everybody to get it right first time. Well, I invited several people from the nuclear industry because I'm hoping they invite you as a keynote over here in the United States (laughs) because we need a lot of help in that area. Uh, And uh, I think you're going to like reading these comments. Adrian, I would work for you. I I feel the same way. It would be great to work for you. You'd be a great boss. And it's hard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's hard, but it's good. Um, And Maria Lopez, the importance of the one-on-one sessions. That is, um, I found, I I mean, that is just so important. uh, And you really validated that. So thank you so much. Do you want to have I don't um, any parting words, Tamara? Uh, thank you very much, Adrian, for joining us today. Um, this has been an amazing session. Learned so so much. Where can people um, catch you on LinkedIn? You you said LinkedIn any day. I was trying to see some of you when I came on but I didn't have time on the name. So there's only one Adrienne Kelby on LinkedIn. You can be sure she's me. Say hello and please stay in touch. And if there are things that you think I can learn from this that you reflect on that I can do better, I'm generally welcome that as well. But I'd love to stay in touch with you. And I will be when I leave and I'm hoping to spread the message to other communities because I think this is so important. So thank you very much for, for your attention and for the opportunity. Yeah. You're very welcome, Adrian. Thank you. So Um, thank you. Um, That's all the time we have for today, though, Rosa. That's right. Time flies when you're having fun. (laughs) Have a great day, wherever you are in the world. Have a good day. Thank you. Same to you all.